You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott. I'd like to pay my respect to country and to all the elders, past, present and emerging, who've been part of the struggle for so long for sovereignty and self-determination. Later on today's show, Nikki Page speaks with Lisa Lumsden at the Repower Port Augusta campaign about how they pushed for years to get a solar thermal plant happening and then finally won when the local coal-fired power station closed in 2016. But then last year, it was announced that the solar thermal project was to be scrapped after all. But Port Augusta is fighting back. So stay tuned for that story. But first up, a good news story about the coronavirus. As the COVID-19 global pandemic escalates rapidly, we've learned that the two most important things for survival are testing and self-isolation. But a drastic shortage of test kits and a confusing mismanagement of official lockdown policies have done very little to curb the curve. There's been a lot of talk in mainstream media about the incompetency of government, but this assumption's based on delusion. What we're actually seeing is eugenics, a good old-fashioned herd cull with an eye on the profit margin. Neoliberalism has always been a fascist death cult. But the good news is that people are organising on the grassroots everywhere to support and get each other's backs in this terrible crisis. And one amazing way that this is happening is where community and scientists are coming together through mutual aid to work on the manufacturing and distribution of open source test kits, ventilators and 3D printed quality masks for medical professionals. IndyLab is a non-profit public research space in Virginia, US, who are just one group working in conjunction with the global collective intelligence platform, Just One Giant Lab, or Joggle. IndyLab are currently crowdsourcing in the attempt to scale up their production and facilities for testing 10,000 people a day, as well as providing sterilization for food and supplies and printing 3D masks. So I'm Bill Slavin. I'm uh, the executive director of IndyLab, which is a nonprofit originally formed with the intention of expanding access to uh, the tools of science so that everyone in the community, uh, rather than just people associated with universities or research organizations, can actually start learning tools that you know really can affect their daily lives. IndyLab founder and chemist Bill Slavin explains on the Final Straw Anarchist Radio this week. Just like I think everybody else in the country, like I was watching the news and basically was like, oh, the, you know, the government's not responding, the government's not responding. And then was like, well, you know, they need to do this like three weeks ago. And, you know, this isn't happening. So we decided uh, as an organization to just shift our organizing into doing pandemic response. So my background, I have a doctorate in analytical chemistry from Purdue University and have done postdoctoral work as a visiting scholar at Northwestern and as a postdoc at uh, University of Wisconsin at Madison. So I, I have a, a background in both bioanalytical chemistry and, and analysis. So I'm familiar with the techniques that uh, the CDC is using for its testing protocol. 
so the first thing that we're doing is actually building uh, testing infrastructure in the area. And that means getting both the test kit, the uh, robotic handling equipment, as well as the actual testing platforms so that we can go from uh, what's currently being done now, which is, you know, a, a hundred tests a day to something like 10,000 tests a, as we get the logistics organized. So the, the next area that we've been putting a lot of work into is helping with supply drives and actually doing sterilizations for uh, necessary supplies for people with immunocompromised systems or otherwise who are at much higher risk uh, in this situation than the general public. So the, the third thing is uh, the respiratory care questions. And one thing that you know people are already posting about is in Italy, they were having, uh, they ran out of ventilators and they didn't have enough oxygen and they didn't have uh, all of these critical things that people uh, in the medical profession need to be doing treatment, which is leading to triage um, and, and people who don't pass a particular test being just left to die, basically. I had been planning to build a oxygen and nitrogen generating system before this happened for the, the startup I'm working on out of the lab. So basically the exact same technology. So uh, shifting it towards doing medical oxygen production. Um, so we have all the plans. We're just sourcing parts at this point in order to get them built. So hopefully at the end of this, once it is built and we've, we've done all the testing and validation, uh, we'll be able to start producing medical grade oxygen to distribute. And at the scale that we're trying to do it, uh, we should be able to fill like high pressure cylinders that people can, they drop off, we will refill the cylinder and then they can take it to wherever they're going. And then the 3D printing and mass production. So that, that's basically something that just popped up this week. It hasn't been one of our main focuses, but especially when getting word out to the maker community, anyone ha who has access to 3D printing capabilities that are large enough, they can be producing these, these types of masks on their own. Uh, and then distributing them ideally to medical professionals uh, because they're the ones that are getting hit hardest in terms of like uh, access to mask supplies or giving the two uh, people with health issues and immunocompromised people. And the other side of that is also starting to sort of plans to build ventilators. And, and that's usually doing it through things like open source Arduino coding and the like. So, so th those are those are the main topic areas that we're working on at the moment. That's amazing and really inspiring. So there's a lot to be said about the fact that the state infrastructure has like not only been failing populations in, in a lot of places around the world, but also like in the United States has been consciously like just holding back, knowing that this is going to happen like weeks out from now and doing nothing but selling their stocks. It like. I'm really glad that that y'all have been like working towards preparing for this. So how feasible do you think it is for things like the ventilators or the respirator? Well, which is the correct term ventilator or respirator? Uh, so a, a ventilator is uh, a computer controlled device. They they'll wheel up to say the, the side of a hospital bed and 
uh, it, it controls airflow to, to the patient. And, and there are a few different designs, and it, it depends upon the uh, particular level of care that the that the person needs at the time. So some people are going to need ventilators. Other people, uh, depending upon the course of their treatment, are going to need uh, high purity oxygen. And one thing I want to address, like going back to, to talking about like the the state's response to this, a large portion of the reason that they're trying to avoid testing, and and you know Trump is basically saying this himself, uh, is that they're minimizing cost. Uh, they're trying to make sure that you know only people who are symptomatic are getting testing, and that's going down to places like the Virginia Department of Health. So people who are coming to tested in Richmond are being turned away because they're like, oh, well, you don't have the symptoms. But, you know, the majority of people are symptom like are carriers and spreaders before they even show any symptoms. So we really have to be moving towards mass testing in order to, like, identify and isolate uh, the virus uh, from contagion. There are other things that are coming into this that are structural within the medical system, like People can't be moved out of hospital beds fast enough because uh, the insurance companies aren't like distributing them. And uh, it's creating all of these bottlenecks that uh, it is all based upon a for profit medical system. And, and the driving factors that are going into a lot of the state's decisions seem to be coming from that exact same mindset. So you've got this background in dealing with chemistry and with knowing the sort of like CDC standards of uh, building barriers basically to reproducing infection with masks and such. And with people in different communities trying to reproduce the things that are lacking like masks or, or testing kits, which seem way more complex and and getting them actually tested seems like a a huge, huge thing that you're scaling up to. Am I understanding correctly that what y'all are, and makers are trying to do is to like produce the things, test them, and then if they follow the right standards, then put them up online for other communities to reproduce. Yes, and there's one uh, one piece of the equation I'm leaving out. There's actually already uh, an international group that formed from out of uh, it's called just one giant lab or Joggle, and. At this point, it's hundreds of people from across the world uh, who are all coming together and crowdsourcing ideas from scientific uh, engineering or medical position. So we're, we're talking like researchers from MIT and Max Planck Institute in Germany and like high level people who all know what they're doing, who, who have all converged to, to try to make like open source. Uh, options available to people. So anyone across the world, if they get these plans and they have access to the resources, they can start scaling uh, and doing the exact same thing that we're doing. So I'm working with that team, and that and that's actually the call I have it to. I'm working with that team to coordinate all of these logistics and getting the information out to different laboratories like ours or medical laboratories that can use the same things. I would understand that there would be barriers um, for like uh, certified medical institutions to take equipment from sources that are not certified. But this being like an emergency situation, how does that play into people producing disease barriers and testing kits and stuff like that in their own communities? 
Yeah, so, so that's that's a uh, a regulatory hurdle that I don't think that we we've seen yet. So there was a ventilator piece that was produced in uh, Italy where you know the company that had the original design got pissy about the fact that people had produced the same piece. So at this point, people have come up with like a new design for the same thing uh, that's open source. So instead of using the the prior designs, they're going around that by having completely redesigned the system. Most of the stuff is going to be publicly accessible. So ideally, some of the regulatory hurdles will be a little lower because you don't have to worry about things like patent infringement. But if we're talking about like the, the hospitals, right now there's such a critical supply shortage that they've been much more open to expanding to to different protocols. And the the lab in Washington actually who first detected coronavirus in the United States had to break federal protocol in order to do the test. So the only reason that we knew that the virus was in the United States was because of people violating protocols. And another aspect of this is, you know, when we're watching the numbers of patients rolling in who have tested positive or who are part of the reason that the the CDC uh, under the Trump administration isn't doing mass scale testing is because it's it's suppressing data. Like if if we don't know who is exposed to the virus and we don't know who is suffering from the virus, then we don't have all these bad numbers that make them look like they they've done something terrible. And so until we get to the point where where mass scale testing is actually happening going to lose all of this information about and and this is this is what's going to go down in history we're going to lose all this information about like how many carriers there are uh how quickly it spread and it's going to fuck up like the scientific community's ability to to address the problem a lot of us feel like we're kind of flying blind right now because it's like oh yeah we know that there are 10,000 10, cases in the united states but how low is that compared to the actual number of cases right now? And that was Bill Slavin at Indie Lab, non-profit public research space, who are working with the global collective intelligence platform, Just One Giant Lab, to manufacture and distribute open source test kits for the COVID-19 virus and crowdsourcing to scale up their own capacity for testing 10,000 people a day. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. The Repower Port Augusta campaign fought for years to get a solar thermal plant happening, and they finally won when their local coal-fired power station was closed in 2016. However, last year it was announced that the $650 million solar thermal project was to be scrapped after all. But Port Augusta is fighting back. There were about 12 to 15 of us who were really actively involved locally and then um, we managed to leverage the campaign to a national level um, and eventually won the, the state government awarded Solar Reserve, an American company with a 20-year contract to supply power from Port Augusta. And uh, unfortunately, last year, that all fell in a big heap. (laughs) 
Lisa Lumsden at the Repower Port Augusta campaign speaks with Nikki Page. But the goal was that solar thermal plant and you got so close. Mm. Uh, why do you think you were so effective, Lisa? Um, uh, over that time, the, the, the need to take action on climate change and the pressure on politicians was certainly building. We had the closure of the power station in Port Augusta, the coal power station that had been you know, generating electricity for 60 years for this state. The loss of that power in the network created um, all kinds of interest and demand um, as well, practical demand. And then we had the crises with the various blackouts that came for a number of reasons um, that created further pressure on the politicians to take some more action. So I think all those things uh, built together. But I think the power of people was pretty influential um, on the political decisions. Um, and certainly on the on the company that the American company often said, you know, had it not been for the community action um, and the desire for the community to, to bring this technology to Australia, that they wouldn't have persisted as long as they did. Um, and whilst this didn't work out, we definitely demonstrated that through this campaign. People want to get behind a transition to renewables and that's quite clear. Yeah, I think it's worth hearing a little bit more about that if you can. The, the fact that the company was was impressed because of course it wasn't it's not just luck is it that um you know the timing of of the uh, blackouts and so on was it about who was involved was it about the coalitions between local groups and other groups what do you think now looking back on it i think there's lots of factors at play during the seven or so years of campaigning we had a lot of setbacks we also had a lot of things happened that created the momentum that moved it forward and it's, we had an alliance of you know local government Port Augusta City Council um, as well as um, a number of environmental groups we had doctors for the environment and nursing groups we had unions we had you know, obviously our community was signing endless petitions um, we had a huge network of people who were all using whatever power they could to influence the direction but at the same time, there's always the financial side of that. There's the, the government's leadership. Uh, the majority of that period, we had Jay Weatherall as Premier. He had a very clear uh, vision for South Australia moving into the renewables and was heavily criticised by many for that. Uh, in the interest of Port Augusta's transition, that was to our advantage. Um, but, you know, but there were also lots of challenges. So um, federally, we had lots of challenges uh, and lack of policy lack of clarity and lots of hurdles. I think I certainly take away from from the experience a sense of um, the power of people, um, that when people come together and they demand something um, and they use all their, all their avenues of, of power um, to bring about change, um, it can eventually happen. But it is, this transition to renewables is, we have to be playing the long game. This is not a short term thing. You know, there have been disappointments, but We've had disappointments before and we pick up and we keep going and this is this is the long game. If we want change, we have to stick to our guns and keep trying. Can you say a little bit about what you think happened and what was the impact on the town and the campaign? We will never know the full uh, information, I think, because a lot of it's kept um, in confidence. It's, it's negotiations within the state government and Gold Reserve, the American company that had won the contract. But essentially what we've been able to determine is that Solar Reserve were not able to secure sufficient finance that would make the project viable um, for them and, um, and so it fell over. I'm not sure what could have made it more viable. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of that. 
and, and the impact on the town? It was a bit of a shock. We had a, a bit of a sense that it might be um, starting to crumble probably three weeks before the announcements were made and we were scrambling behind the scenes trying to, you know, save it. It certainly hit the community pretty hard. You know, they'd set up a... Solar Reserve had set up an office in town uh, with a big window completely covered with the image of what the solar thermal power station would look like. Um, they had two staff members and they had programs going out into the schools teaching the kids about how exciting this project would be for their city. Then the doors shut. <laughs> I think symbolically the solar thermal project, after all the community effort and then the backing by the government... Um, was a bit of a symbol that the government was going to support our community and that our community had a new exciting future um, in front of it. And so when it fell over, there was huge economic dis disappointment. There was, I think, probably the, the sort of self-esteem of the town, if you can call it that, plummeted and the sense of hope um, for the future for the city kind of took a dive. Um, and I think all the naysayers said, I told you so, but most of the community believed that this was happening. It looked very real. And I think even the company, the employees that they had in Australia believed it was going to happen as well. But there was nobody, you know, pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. It just didn't come to fruition. And that's well, what happened, yes. I guess. Well, you, you have built on that um, hopefulness, really, haven't you? And mm. continued to be in Port Augusta, a town in transition. Um, yep. You've made a lot of plans for a green power festival, but that's been uh, postponed. <laughs> but in the process, you've pulled together some of all the good things that are happening that you want to show off and celebrate. So let's wrap mm. up by you talking about all the good things that are happening in Port Augusta, sitting there in yeah. such a sunny and windy place right in the top of our St. Vincent Golf. Spencer Golf. Spencer yeah. Golf. Got it wrong. Spencer Golf. <laughs> yeah, so just for some clarity, Northern Power Station, which was the large coal-fired power station here, was generating 540 megawatts of power. So as I talk about the projects that are coming, you'll do quick sums and you'll determine, you'll see that what's coming is far, far greater than what we previously had. And we're privileged to have the projects that we're getting, that we already have and that, we're, that are coming because of the power station, actually, because all the infrastructure is here and we happen to be blessed with all the geography required. Lots of sun, lots of wind, mountains, um, flatland, everything you need for renewable energy. So it all comes together beautifully for Port Augusta. So at the moment we have Sundrop Farms, which is a uh, world-leading, world-first hydroponic tomato farm that um, grows tomatoes using salt water that they desalinate using power generated by a solar thermal power tower, which is uh, basically a whole lot of mirrors. I think there's 85,000 of them pointed up um, at the top of a tower, um, which reflects the heat of the sun and uh, boils water, um, which then um, desalinates it. And that as you drive into Port Augusta, is the beacon now, instead of the big old chimney stack from the power station, you'll now see a glowing tower as you drive into Port Augusta. In addition to that, we've got the largest solar farm in the Southern Hemisphere, 220 megawatts um, on the outskirts of Port Augusta. We've got Lincoln Gap Wind Farm, which is another 220 megawatts of power, um, and then that's looking like it's going to double in size, so that's well and truly in construction and already powering the network um, and in addition to that we've got three other projects that are pretty impressive we've got the dp energy and iberdrola renewable energy park which is 386 megawatts likely to start construction this quarter we've got goat hill pumped hydro project which is another 230 megawatts 
um, of power, which is where they pump water from uh, a bottom reservoir to a top reservoir when electricity prices are very low, and then they drop it down through turbines to create electricity when the power prices are higher and the demand is there. It's essentially a battery. And then the last project is the 1414 Degrees Aurora project. So everyone who's followed the Solar Reserve project that we lobbied for, and a South Australian company called 1414 Degrees has purchased that for $2 million in November last year, and they bought all the planning approvals and all associated um, approvals with that project. They are not a solar thermal project, but they are thermal energy. So they um, have developed a technology where they store heat in silicon cells, um, large silicon batteries essentially. So they're going to be planning to build a whole huge, a 400 megawatt array of solar panels that will then um, generate electricity which create heat to be stored in these batteries. And then when electricity is required, they will then be able to release that heat to create more electricity and send it back into the grid. So oh, oh, that's Lisa, a really exciting yeah. technology. You have just upped our good news quotient <laughs> by, by many, many percent. We try to put out the good news, but what a, what a great story. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show we heard from Nikki Page speaking with Lisa Lumpston at the Repower Port Augusta campaign about how the long fight to transition to renewable solar thermal power there continues. And if you want to find out more about that, check them out on your socials. We also heard from Bill Slavin at Indie Lab, a non-profit public research space who are working with the global collective intelligence platform Just One Giant Lab to manufacture and distribute open source test kits for the COVID-19 virus and crowdsourcing to scale up their own capacity for testing 10,000 people a day, as well as providing sterilisation for food and supplies and printing 3D masks for medical professionals. You can check them out at IndieLab.co. This audio recording was sourced with thanks from The Final Store Radio at thefinalstoreradio.noblogs.org. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for continuing to get this show out to you, despite the fact that we're all going into lockdown everywhere. Earth Matters is usually produced at the studios at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, but today I produced it in my own bedroom. Earth Matters can be contacted on 03-9419-8377, and our Gmail is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for this week, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13?
Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Those people who have no land rights haven't got justice, but neither do those people who have land rights have justice. You're listening to Community Radio Network around Australia, brought to you by 3CR Community Radio. So stay tuned as we bring you news, live updates, music and interviews with Aboriginal people from around the country. The only free body we have is the Aboriginal government on the grassroots and the Aboriginal embassy on the lawns outside the old parliament house. We will not go away. And as that stone rests in that mountain, and as our spirit rests in this country and over this country, we will not go away. Neither shall our power pass. And that's here forever, until justice comes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.